Hey, everybody, this is Dylan with the Scripture Chronicles. We wanted to thank you guys for tuning in to the show today. If you guys enjoy the show, please jump on to iTunes and leave a positive review on there. It really helps out the show. Also, you can find us online at www.thebibleisastory.com. Again, that's www.thebibleisastory.com. Thanks again for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles. This is Corey, and with me is my fellow bearded brother and co-host, Dylan. Welcome, everybody, to the Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. Isn't that right, Corey? That is right. Yeah, so we are going through the story of the Bible, and we are getting further into the rabbit hole kind of literally we're we're going down right dylan that is correct so up until this point we have discussed genesis chapters one through three we're going to be jumping in even further today like Corey just alluded to but before we do that we're going to go ahead and tell you guys uh, a little bit about what we have done up until this point that being said If you have not caught the episode last week or the preceding episodes, it would be beneficial if you went and listened to those episodes first. These episodes really build on one another. That being said, if you only have a little bit of time, a brief recap of what we've gone over so far and about really what we're trying to do here with this podcast. We believe that the Bible is a unified story, and as such, we're going through the Bible book by book in such a way as to highlight the narrative elements of the text itself and showcase how the Bible really works together as a single unified story. We made the amazing and very controversial claim that the Bible is a book, and we are sticking to that claim. We saw this in the fact that the author established a literary framework in Genesis chapter 1, where days 1 through 3 really correspond with days 4 through 6. So day one and day four, for example, day two and day five, for example, and day three and day six, they all really correspond and build on elements of each day. And then finally, that culminates in God's rest in chapter one, verse seven. Chapter two, we then talked about the image of God and what it means to be created in the image of God in Genesis, we talked about the fact that ultimately the image of God, as it is portrayed originally to Adam and Eve, was to be put in an Edenic temple, that is the Garden of Eden, it was set up as a temple, and they were put in this garden temple to be priests, to worship and obey God, and to enjoy him and follow his wise decrees and decisions, and that was supposed to be the ideal. Then, in chapter 3, we saw that humans decided that they wanted to take wisdom into their own hands by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and bad. So we talked about the fact that in the middle of the garden, there was two trees. There was the tree of life, which God actually wanted the humans to eat of. That tree was, in a very real sense, indicative of God's own life. So when they would participate in the eating of that tree, it was representative and and actual of them eating of God's divine life and sharing in that divine life. And that was the ideal state. As soon as they ate the tree of knowledge of good and bad, 
they became wise and they became like God, but they were already like God. So they became like God in a different capacity, sacrificing the relationship with God in favor of being like God in the ability to decide for themselves what was good and bad, and then enter chapter four, where we are today. Uh, Corey, do you have anything to add to that? Things are going down now. That is downhill and fast. So we just saw the fall, and um, the sad news is we're not going to stop falling for some time. The last thing we, we read in chapter three was the fact that Adam and Eve were promised death, but yet they haven't died, and they were kicked out of the garden, and were no longer allowed to eat of the tree of life, and they're away from God. Right? And so that's some things to keep in mind, like what, what does that mean to now be out of the garden? What will things look like now? And so I think that that question should be at the forefront of our minds now. Like, what, what's different about life? Let's go ahead and read. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So as Corey said, beginning in chapter 4, we have at the forefront of our mind the fact that at the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve had been exiled from the garden. There was a cherubim placed at the entrance to the garden where it was protecting the tree of life. Adam and Eve are no longer welcome in this temple garden. They're no longer welcome to participate in God's own life. And now enter post-exile life. So Eve, who is named Eve as the mother of all the living, gives birth. And so at this point, we should have a bunch of things swimming through our head. So first off, we should have the fact that Eve is the mother of all the living, giving birth. That's a big thing. Also, remember in Genesis 3.15, God is promised a seed that is going to come from the woman. He's going to crush the serpent's head and the head, uh, excuse me, and the serpent is going to bruise the seed's heel. So in the first verse of chapter four, we have a seed coming from the woman. So the first question you should be asking is, is this the seed that is being talked about in the previous chapter? The connection between these two, these two chapters, it makes it one continuous story. Yeah, that's, that's, Definitely the, the other big thing that I, I think the bigger thing that we kind of miss in the recap is we're looking for the seed. And so, yes. All right. Is this the seed? Yeah. So with regard to this narrative, then, so we should be asking the question, is this the promised seed? And it seems as though that's the question Eve is also asking. 
Eve says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, or I have, with God's help, brought forth a son, in some other translations. And so this can actually be read one of two ways, both of which are very contrary. So you have the positive reading on the one hand, where it it sees Eve's words as stating that through God's help, she was able to bring forth a son, and therefore she's thanking God, in a sense, for the bringing forth of this son. On the flip side of that, you also have a potential reading where Eve is actually claiming power over the ability to bring forth a son and is identifying potentially the son with the promised seed in her arrogance, stating that she has the power to bring forth a son with the help of God. She's like God now, even in that case, in that sense, she's able to bring forth a son. And because she's able to bring forth a son, she might be identifying her ability to do that with her ability to bring forth the blessing that God was trying to bring through this promised seed in Genesis 3.15. So just like in the Abraham and Sarah story where they try to bring out the blessed son themselves by giving over Hagar to, to Abraham to sleep with. In this sense, Eve might be pridefully stating that she has brought forth the the promised seed of her own power with the help of the Lord, making herself even more like God in that sense. So there's two possible readings of this, and we have to hold those in the backs of our mind as we go through the rest of this narrative uh, to see which one makes the most sense. Yeah, I feel like that the second option isn't something, I don't know about the listeners, but I feel like most people, like myself included before today, haven't heard that as an option. I think we all think, oh yeah, you know, God just gave her a man. That's a good thing. Um, but without really paying much attention to the details of even the way in which she's saying things. Yeah, so we will probably just have to read to the story, right, to get the full context of it. And so we're keeping that in the back of our mind. With the other questions we also have in the back of our mind, like, okay, is this actually the seed? And uh, the, the other question is, what, what is life now like outside of the garden and so is eve continuing in her sinfulness um, by being prideful here is the new question being added in verse one and then so she bears cain's brother abel abel is a keeper of sheep cain a worker of the ground right so we have cain doing what the curse said men would do you're going to be working the ground and so then they both give the lord an offering which is really interesting um, I always just kind of took this story and stride, kind of glossed over it. Oh, yeah, sure, God's worth an offering. But they just got kicked out of the garden. And in in that logic, if we pretend like we don't know the story, thinking like, oh, they're just going to be cut off for God, from God forever. Well, that's not the case. God is still with them. And Eve still says, oh, God help me. And Cain and Abel bring offerings to God one from the flock, one from the fruit of the ground. And we then see God have another judgment call as he's been doing. He had regard for Abel and his offering, but verse five, he had no regard for Cain and his offering. All right? So it's just interesting that God is still there and they're interacting 
And so Cain gets angry from this. And then God even incites some wisdom, or I should say gives Cain an insight into wisdom and saying, like, why are you angry? He just goes on to say, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Um, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. So we we thought that, at least for me, I, I looking at the the knowledge of good and evil, that tree. Once we take of once we take from it, it almost sounded like we would be entirely on our own. But that's not what happens. What what do we get instead, Dylan? Yeah, it really does seem to suggest that God is still, in a sense with his people. And moreover, we also get this idea that God still has expectations for his people. He still expects that they are to come before him rightly. So the optimal, the best possible way that things could have worked out is already no more. We saw that the fall happened. We are no longer in the garden and humans have selected their own wisdom over and against God's wisdom. But even still, like Corey just pointed out, God is still showcasing what his wisdom would look like to Cain. And it is assumed that Abel had a, a insight then into God's wisdom when he presented his offering rightly. Now, the text doesn't, doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us why Abel's offering was accepted. It doesn't tell us why Cain's offering was not. And it is a natural question to ask of the text, why would Cain's offering not be accepted? And then why would Abel's offering be accepted? It's just not really something that the author is trying to deal with necessarily in this particular text. Some have suggested that perhaps it's due to the fact that Abel's offering was blood, whereas Cain's offering was of fruit, and so trying to draw the connection between sacrifice there. It really doesn't seem to suggest that in the text. Uh, it's not a terrible suggestion per se, but the text is silent on the issue, and it assumes that you don't need to know that, but it puts forth different things instead. In really dealing then with this wisdom motif that we saw brought out in chapter 3, though, that seems to be kind of where the author is going here. It, it says that if you do that, if you do well, you will be accepted. And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Again, that right there, looking back to even Eve's curse over and against Adam, where Adam, her desires for Adam but he's going to rule over her. Again, it's drawing back to that imagery here as well. So we really get a lot of the Genesis chapter three imagery being poured in uh, to chapter four as well. And now what does it mean to do life after having chosen your wisdom? And God's saying, you still can choose my wisdom. There's hope. Just like we talked about in chapter three, God isn't surprised by the fact that they chose their own wisdom and he's bringing them through this plan, this stage. But this hope that Eve might have had, that Cain was the potential seed, is starting to become a little bit probably not. <laughs> a little <laughs> more. Bit, yeah. yeah. Does it, doesn't seem very much like it. That, that's a very nice way to let him down. <laughs> it's not you, Cain. We decided to go with someone else. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely not the guy. He 
will go on to not just be angry at God, but the text goes on, this, the very next verse, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Wow, that escalated really quickly. <laughs> okay. Just, He's definitely not the guy. He's definitely not the guy. Yeah. <laughs> if there's any questions before, I guess along with that, it seems, you know, the, the big difference now is that there is sin in the world. Like we just go very quickly into murder all of a sudden when something goes wrong. So um, sin is now the default mode, it seems. And this idea well, since God is still with us, what changes? It seems like the only thing that's really changes is no tree of life to eat from, as we already seen. But we just see that God still is there offering wisdom. And I think it's so easy, again, just to kind of gloss over, like, oh, yeah, it's just how the story goes that we know. But as we kind of come to approach the story fresh, just looking at the clues that it gives us instead of our previous knowledge, we should really look back, uh, be taken back and say, like, wow. Why is God even still with these people? Um, so he, he cares about them, he loves them, and he's still trying to offer wisdom. And so um, even the way in which God handles Cain's sin is very similar to what we saw in chapter 3. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother, Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Wow, so let's stop there. There's a lot um, happening in God's response to Cain's sin. Once again, we see God coming as though he's kind of this prosecuting attorney figure. Again, you get the courtroom imagery, God approaching Cain and asking via questions and getting Cain to admit his own sin, just as he had done to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, where is your brother Abel? Abel said, or Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Um, so once again, we have the same picture that we had in Genesis chapter 3 with God coming as the prosecuting attorney and Cain completely denying it, just as we had seen in Genesis chapter 3. It's basically a recapitulation, same sort of scenario, same sort of story. Once again, humans think that they know better than God, and Cain tries to deny it in front of the Almighty God. Yeah, that usually doesn't work out. At least it didn't work out for Adam and Eve. Um, the blame game didn't work well either. And so um, we see God is clearly all-knowing and re returning to the language of the curse, right? So he says, cursed are you from the ground, right? So in chapter 3, the ground was cursed because of the sin of Adam. And now you're going to have to go and work the ground and the idea um, later in that curse of from the dust you were made to the dust you shall return. Um, it, God says the ground has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Right. And so 
than the same idea. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. And so it, it's almost like a, you thought it was hard to work the ground after the curse. It's, it's implying like, yeah, this is almost like a, another curse. It's going to be harder now. You are falling into the same sin that your parents fell into. And there's going to be punishment and consequences for your sin. And so the, the big promise in this punishment that's something new from chapter 3 is you, Cain, shall be a fugitive and wanderer to the earth. And then we have Cain's response in verse 13, saying, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Uh, another translation for that is uh, iniquity. So my iniquity is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Dylan, what do you make of Cain's response? Cain's response can be read in one of two ways. So your typical English translation will say punishment. So Cain will be saying, my punishment is greater than I can bear. As Corey alluded to, there is a, another translation of that word, iniquity or sin. Generally speaking, the word used for punishment is used to refer to iniquity or sin. And so in that sense, you have to ask the question, is this Cain lamenting because he cannot stand up under the weight of the punishment that God has put on him? Or is this Cain being repentant? If he states, my iniquity is greater than I can bear, it is potentially a Cain stating that I cannot bear the weight of my own sinfulness. It is a lament of his sinful nature, the fact that he had opted to be sinful in this case. My iniquity is more than I can bear. This is something that I I wish to repent of. And then you see the Lord in chapter 15 say, not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which is east of Eden. So, it could potentially be read that Cain was repentant for his iniquity because of what he had done. And God, even though he is casting him out of the land and away from his presence, just as he had done Adam and Eve, God is having mercy. Cain is going out, but God has mercy. And instead of allowing him just to go out and die, God puts the mark on Cain such that whoever finds him will not kill him, and that he's actually able to go and settle in the land of Nod. Interesting fact, word Nod actually means wanderer in Hebrew. So he settles in the land of wanderer, which is east of Eden. All of those things will become important later, particularly the idea of wandering, the idea of east, because east will we'll come to find generally is negative. So if something is east, it represents bad things or the nations. And so it's east of Eden, away from that place which God had initially set up as the garden temple. So God still has mercy on, on Cain, just as he had mercy on Adam and Eve. We're still seeing God is with people. 
and the land is definitely cursed now, but now it's getting worse, right? So the curse got worse. And now it seems like the people are getting further removed from God, right? So at first it was perfectly in union with God and there's no sin. Oh, great. Perfect. And now we see Cain still has some union with God, uh, but yet he's prone to sin now. He's just born into it. And now he's driven even further away. So he, he goes east, which he's driven from the presence of Yahweh. So it's just uh, another step away. I'm imagining, like, you know, in math, I forget what grade. I feel like when you start algebra, maybe pre-algebra, you do those number lines. So it's like zero. You have to mark the positive and negative integers. I feel like we're just getting more and more negative with each misstep and wrongdoing. And it seems like the text is cluing us into that. It's like, just because Adam and Eve have fallen and we're, we're waiting for the seed, it still doesn't mean that you should just keep going in the negatives, right? Just, you know, like God says, come on, choose God. Will, will you not be accepted if you do well? Um, but yet we're still going into the negative integers are going down the hole and it's uh, not looking good. So we're going to go ahead and finish up chapter four then. So jumping down through the genealogy, we're going to go ahead and start out at verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah and the name of the other was Zilhah. Adah bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and who have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Even in this passage, it it seems like through the genealogy of Cain is trying to focus on Lamech. And so what is brought up to us about Lamech? And there, there's two ways, again, to view this. One way to view Lamech is, so first of all, he marries a couple of wives and he then says to them, look, and we break into um, some poetry and it's almost like he's singing a song about the murder he just committed, right? So look it, I just killed a man because he hurt me. And so I'm going to get a revenge that is 77-fold, meaning much greater than the revenge that was set on Cain, right? And so you could look at this and it's like, wow, things are getting really bad. I mean, this guy, Lamech, the great, 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 great grandson of Cain, is bragging about 
killing. We saw Cain at least being repentant, saying, God, I, I can't handle this. Iniquity is too much for me. And now we have Lamech not talking to God. He's removed from God. And he's just talking to his two wives, which is outside of the Genesis ideal. And he says, my punishment is going to be way greater than Cain's. Dylan, what's the other view on this? Yeah, the other possibility is that Genesis 4 is a reference to, in some sense, the Deuteronomic understanding of cities of refuge, where those who kill somebody are allowed to escape to the city of refuge. And if they escape to the city of refuge, the avenger of blood is unable to actually go and avenge the slaying of somebody else at that point until due process has been uh, undergone. So in that sense, then, it's possible that Genesis chapter 4 is setting up a prototype of that, where Cain gets punished by God, but at the same time, God has mercy on him and allows him to leave to the land of Nod and build a prototypical city of refuge. So when Lamech comes on the scene, he says, my wives, hear what I have to say to you. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Basically, I killed this guy out of self-defense. And it was not ideal, but I killed him because I needed to. It was self-defense. Therefore, if Cain is avenged sevenfold by God. So we just saw that God says, I'm going to avenge Cain sevenfold of anybody who kills him. If Cain is avenged sevenfold and he actually was guilty of the murder that he committed, how much more should I be vindicated by God because I killed in self-defense? And so it really gets into that idea of Lamech saying that I am, I'm innocent of, of this murder. Um, those are the two possible readings, uh, but keeping with the idea that Genesis 4 on is really this descent into destruction for humanity, the first reading is probably a bit more preferred. So we get the idea that this is the first time in the entire narrative it's stated that there are two wives instead of one only, which is the Genesis ideal as set forth in Genesis 2. That kind of indicates that this is potentially a negative thing. And then it really does seem like he's boasting about killing this guy. Moving then on after Lamech, you get once again, another son being born to Eve. So the entire narrative of chapter four is kind of punctuated by son birth. So you have a birth of a son at the beginning, who's the oldest, ironically, the one you would expect to be potentially that promised seed we talked about in Genesis 3, the oldest son, the one who should inherit the blessing, actually turns out to be the murderer. Abel, the second son, maybe he could inherit the blessing. He's killed, so it's a no-go for him as well. So then what? You have the first son who's a murderer. Obviously, it can't be that guy. And then the other one who's murdered, well, obviously, it can't be that guy. Well, fortunately for us, the ending of the chapter is punctuated then by the birthing of Seth. So we see Seth be born. And then Eve, in contrast to what she said before, where she said that her and God had some part to play equally in the birth of Cain. Now she says, Seth 
is the son that God has appointed for me, the seed that God has appointed for me. And interestingly enough, the word Seth in Hebrew, set is actually played off of the idea of appointed, set. So the words actually look identical in Hebrew. The only difference is the vowels in the two. And so you really get it played off this idea that Seth now is the appointed offspring or the appointed seed. And now all of a sudden those buzzers in your mind should be going, aha, this is the dude that we should be paying attention to. And you get that further cemented into your brain by the time, by it stating that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you get Seth onto the scene, the appointed seed. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Corey, do you have anything to add to that before we go into yeah, chapter five? Definitely. The, the authors are saying, look at Cain's associated with murder. Seth is associated with people calling upon the name of God. And so we, we're seeing these these two different family lines break out. And so it seems like chapter four is here to say, this is why Cain didn't get the blessing. Um, it's going to be deferred to the one in which we think of people calling on God with, not murdering with. And so chapter four is a little side trail. It's like you're, you're doing those maps or the, those mazes on the back of cereal boxes. We just hit one that hit a dead end. So we have to come back. It's like, okay, where did that line go? Okay, now we're back to the line which is carried through Seth. And so Seth, the appointed one, is the one where we're going to follow the offspring to. So going into chapter 5, we have a, a somewhat of a restart. Uh, verse 1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. This uh, phrase, the generations of, this is actually how the book got its name, uh, Genesis. Um, that being like genealogy or generations. And so this is the generations or genealogy of Adam, right? So we just took a little side break to see what happened to the firstborn. But now we're going to go and follow through Adam and says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then it goes on to say, Adam lived this many years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And then we're going to have a similar pattern. And so we're going to have Adam's line go through Seth. And we're going to follow Seth through all these guys who live to be incredibly, incredibly old, except for one guy, Enoch, which is kind of a, a weird break. So we, we see Jared father Enoch in verse 18. Uh, but then down in verse 21, we see Enoch father Methuselah, and he doesn't get to live as long as the other people. Dylan, is that significant at all? Absolutely. So Enoch, he lives for 65 years. He fathers Methuselah after 300 years, he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch with 365 years. And then Enoch finally walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And this is one of those passages where people like to get all wrapped up in conspiracy theories and craziness and things like that. It is a very interesting passage, but the most important thing of this particular passage is the fact that 
Enoch walks with God. And that's going to be a construction that we're going to see a bunch of times later on in the book of Genesis and the Bible as a whole, where it really references this idea that when someone walks with God, they are actually committing to that ideal. What was it in the in the beginning that was the the perfect state? It was the state in which Adam and Eve were able to participate in the divine life and walk with God. So that's not to say that Enoch overcame sin or anything like that, but he followed God rightly. And so we're going to see that come up again real soon in Noah, who is a God-fear and walks with God, and Abraham, etc. So that's a really a really important thing to point out, that Enoch walks with God. It's a good break. However, there's no mystical craziness or conspiracy theory going on with that. These are the generations of Adam going down into Noah, and we have a stop and another focus on Noah. So in verse 28, Lamech, father to son, verse 29, called this name Noah, saying that out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So we see a guy promising to bring rest. Remember, we, we still are waiting for that seventh day rest. Um, at the beginning of chapter 2, as God ends creation, there was no evening that day. And all of a sudden, this other Lamech, Noah's dad, the, the good Lamech from the good line, promises that this is the guy who will bring us rest. Noah's name means rest. Some translations have relief from our work. And so, this the guy then to reverse the curse. And so, we're going to read just through um, the first eight verses of chapter six, we think that this is a, a good end to this section. Um, and, and just a quick reason for that, at the beginning of um, chapter five, we saw these are the generations of Adam. If you, look, if you look at chapter six, verse nine, it says these are the generations of Noah. That phrase, these are the generations of, is mentioned 11 times, and they seem to be good um, breaks in the narrative. And so... Um, it seems that the beginning of chapter 6 is trying to link up with at least chapter 5. Finishing up here, um, we're going to just look over chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And so, it says, verse 1, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, we have a, another passage that's prone to conspiracy theories, an odd passage. So Dylan, what's happening in chapter 6, and how does it relate to chapter 5? 
the beginning of chapter six is often understood as a prologue to the flood narrative that is to follow. However, Corey was pointing out the fact that this actually links upwards. It is actually a continuation of chapter five, rather than, as some people suppose, acting as a prologue to the flood narrative that is to follow. And that is due to a, a few things. And like Corey also pointed out, this is a passage that is prone to a lot of conspiracy theories. Some people find this to be the most interesting passage in the Bible. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, though, really acts as a continuation of the idea of the mighty men as talked about from chapter 5, those who are of the line of Seth, and really serve to introduce the key character, Noah. In verse 9 of chapter 6, we have that construction, these are the generations of Noah. So also, like Corey pointed out, that serves to indicate the break in the narrative where, where something new is about to transpire. So again, we would see chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 as linking upwards and continuing the narrative from chapter 5 more so than creating a new narrative uh, and then leading into the flood narrative. So with that, the idea that man began to multiply on the face of the, the earth and uh, that daughters were born to them, the sons of God, saw the daughters of man and they were attractive and they took them as their wives. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh and his, his day shall be 120 years. What exactly does that mean? Well, this has led to a host of interpretations, but the most natural of which would suggest that the sons of God and the daughters of uh, finding the daughters of men attractive is, is simply the, mighty men or, or men of the earth finding the daughters of men attractive and marrying and they're continuing in marriage, but they're continuing in marriage in a state that is outside of the ideal. It's outside of the garden temple and it's outside of God's main blessing. And so you get then this idea that things are going as they were intended to originally, but with the main caveat that things aren't according to the ideal. People are marrying and giving in marriage, but they're not out inside the land. And so, therefore, God says that my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Well, is that some sort of punishment to the idea that the people are, are marrying, giving in marriage? No, not really. Instead, it's a continuation of the idea that actually started in Genesis chapter three, where God actually cursed man, cast him out of the garden and said that they no longer had access to the tree of life. At that point, man was no longer able to access the divine life. And because like we talked about, man is mortal, man will ultimately die. So there's the spiritual death component to the fact that they're cast outside of the garden, but there's also the, the physical death component where man actually is a mortal creature. They will in fact die without the ability to get to the tree of life. And so God then is saying, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be numbered to 120 years, implying that after the fall, the thing that was allowing men to live so long was actually God's spirit or the, the Ruah. So God was actually sustaining men to live 
to this age. So we saw that in chapter five, where all these dudes lived to such a long age, but that's the exception, not the rule. Instead, God is saying that as a result of the continuation of the curse idea, where man is no longer able to access the tree of life, my spirit is not going to consistently keep man alive longer than they're supposed to be. Instead, their days are going to be limited to 120 years. And we find that the first person to die at 120 years is Moses, interestingly enough. And so we'll actually kind of touch back onto that when we get to Moses. Um, the Nephilim are one of the most controversial things in Genesis, perhaps. And it it really is not supposed to be that it's that controversial. Instead, it never says anything negative about these these Nephilim. As a, as a matter of fact, it calls them the mighty men who are of old, the men of renown. And that is natural when you read it in light of chapter 5, in the respect that the sons of Shem are seen as these mighty warriors, these mighty warrior kings that come onto the earth. And so if they are reproducing, of course, these are the mighty men of all. It's, it doesn't necessarily deal with any sort of spiritual being coming and having sex with the the daughters of men and creating these hybrid angelic human beasts. Uh, but instead, simply the fact that humans were marrying and giving in marriage, the line of Seth is really the line we're supposed to be focusing on. The mighty men, as, as specified in chapter 5, have lived a really long time because of the spirit of God that was in them. But that spirit is not going to allow for them to live that long for forever. Instead, they're going to be cut down to 120 years. And also, these mighty men are giving uh, in marriage and, and marrying and are reproducing to create the mighty men of old. Corey, what do you think of that reading? Yeah, so that's you know, definitely makes sense if you connect it up to chapter five. You know, there's such a a wide range of people that that take this as the sons of God are angelic, and so they take these daughters of men as their wives. And then verse three, then they say this is in response of punishment to this evil that they were doing, and so he has to cut cut down their days because something that these angelic beings did. And so y you can see some merit for that if you take verse 3 to be the punishment for that specific action of verses 1 and 2. But yeah, we, it's hard to imagine God punishing humans in their life for something that these angels of God did. And so now we have to take out this line you know, but the problem is that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, right? So they, they stuck around. It didn't stop these crazy creatures. So are they crazy creatures or are they just, or some translations say giants? Are they just giants or are they just, you know, a mighty line of people? And so we, we tend to go with, yeah, it's a mighty line of people. And so definitely look into this passage and see for yourself of what is the author trying to highlight here? Is he trying to highlight uh, mystical beings that are called Nephilim, or is this just a group of people on the earth who are around? So wrapping up, we see in the ending of chapter six, verses one through eight, the idea that every inclination or every intention of man's heart is for evil. All of the time, the Lord actually regrets that he has made man on the earth because 
man is so focused on going after his own wisdom that every intention of his heart is for his own wisdom, which is for evil. God decides that he's going to blot out people from the earth because this is unacceptable to him. But we see that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Remember from last week, the eyes being the, the filter by which things are judged as good or bad in the Bible. So Noah is viewed as good in the eyes of the Lord. And so we're left with that. And next week, we're going to go ahead and jump into the flood narrative. We are not trying to shove our interpretation of these things down your throat, but instead to highlight the the method by which we approach the scripture to get you to understand that the scripture is a unified narrative, as the people from the Bible Project would say. It's a, a unified story that points to Christ, and that is what we believe the Bible is. It's meant to be read as a story, and not only is it meant to be read as a story— we're meant to understand it in the mode or the the mold that God has actually put it in. We, as Westerners, really like propositions. We really like truth statements, and it's really easy for us to ignore the literary characteristics of the text in favor of creating principles. So instead of simply creating principles, we really want you to read through the text, ask the question— what is the author actually trying to get at and say by writing this in this way? And why is the author using this literary form? Why is he using this story? Why is he putting in poetry here, etc.? So use these methods to better yourself and to better your reading of the text, and it will really help to enlighten your, your understanding of the text. And like Corey said, don't do it alone. I think that this wraps up this week's episode. We'd like to thank you guys for tuning in once again to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. If you guys enjoyed the show, we would love it if you went to iTunes or to Apple Podcasts and left a review on there. It really helps out the show if you leave a positive review. Also, if you would like to connect with us, you can email us your questions, your thoughts, your anything at scripturechronicles at gmail.com. We would love to connect with you. We are going to be having a Q&A episode fairly soon. And so email in your questions, and we'd love to answer those on the show. Also, you can go to our website, www.thebibleisastory.com. There you can find the podcast, the blog, other resources that we're going to be posting. Keep connected with us there. If you also want to find us on Facebook, uh, there's a lot of updates that are happening on there. That's at Scripture Chronicles. We want to thank you guys, like I said, for tuning into the show and enjoy your days. Adios.